Section 20 of Chapters on Evolution by Andrew Wilson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 8 The Evidence from Missing Links, Part 1. When the Darwinian theory of the origin of living species and other theories of evolution were yet in their infancy, the subject matters of the present paper had attained notoriety, if not fame. The early critics of the hypotheses of evolution were not slow to fix upon missing links and their nature, their assumed absence, and the impossibility of supplying them as weapons of satisfactory kind and lasting strength against such ideas of the order in which the living universe had been formed. Especially has the phrase found favor in the eyes of critics of an unscientific cast of mind, those old ladies of both sexes, to use Huxley's words, who consider the origin of species a decidedly dangerous book, and who regard most contributions to the literature of evolution as works of darkness in the most literal sense of the term. Persons who would have been puzzled had they been asked to mention a single example of a case where missing links were required, nevertheless were found ready with much unction to declare that Mr. Darwin could never be expected to fill the gaps in question, and the argument as against evolution, in the early days of which we are speaking, was frequently supposed to be clenched with the triumphant query, where are the missing links? A feature of Darwinism and evolution, not to speak of natural history at large, so apparently familiar as the subject before us, deserves some detailed examination. It is not too much to say that even with the lapse of years and with the better understanding by cultured persons at large of evolution, its weaknesses and its strength, the nature of missing links is often imperfectly understood. Apart from the necessity for some clear understanding of what is demanded by the opponents of evolution and of what evolutionists and naturalists are able to present in reply to these demands, the present topic may be said to have grown in importance with the most recent discoveries in geological science. Its true nature and its attitude to the existing phases of evolution are therefore matters for careful inquiry, since their investigation may powerfully aid the solution of the great problem which evolution endeavors in one phase to solve, the how and why of living nature and her ways. The widespread recognition, even in the popular mind, of the importance of the discovery of missing links between existing species of animals insofar as the welfare of evolution theories is concerned, is not difficult to trace or account for. Taking for granted the very reasonable and obvious admission that any theory of evolution must rest upon the idea of the production of new species by the modification of the old, it follows that in our examination of living nature we should expect to find evidence of the connection between the varied forms of life in existence. From the monad up to man, the evolutionist postulates an unbroken series, not indeed, as many suppose, in one straight, undeviating line, but rather after the idea of a great tree with countless branches, offshoots, and diverging twigs, which, however, unite in their lower limits in a common stem. Now, is it possible, when we look around at the varied forms of animal and plant life, to trace this unbroken sequence, this continuity of structure, and this connected relationship? The common observance of nature, not to speak of even an elementary acquaintance with popular zoology, forbids the idea, and at once negatives the supposition. The forms of life, animals, and plants fall into groups and divisions of varying extent 
and different rank in the scale of creation. In each large group we include a number of lesser divisions, the members of which are united by certain common characters. But even in the smallest of our classes or orders, the gaps betwixt the included forms are many and wide, and nature, as we observe her processes, does not appear to supply the missing links, in the existing order of affairs, at least. In that great sub-kingdom of the animal world, which zoologists have parceled out as the vertebrata, or the territory wherein man and quadrupeds reign, as the aristocrats, birds and reptiles as the middle classes, with their varied estates and ranks, and frogs, toads, and fishes, as the lower orders and substrata of vertebrate society, the gaps existing between the various classes are very patent and clear to the merest tyro in natural history. Not even the proverbial old lady, with a marked partiality to a belief in the marvelous in natural history, or towards a literal interpretation of the compound zoological character of certain wondrous beasts mentioned in ancient fables, could be brought to entertain seriously the idea of the existence of an animal half-reptile, half-bird. Still less easy is it for the popular mind to conceive the existence of a creature midway as to structure between the bird and the quadruped, whilst certain small jokers, a race happily becoming, as regards scientific matters, well-nigh extinct, might be perfectly safe in challenging zoologists at large, to produce the missing links between man and his nearest animal relations, or to show on Lord Monbado's hypothesis the various stages in the decline of man's caudal appendage, upon the disappearance of which that witty savant is presumed to have founded a large part of man's physical and moral supremacy. Amongst lower forms of life, the gaps are equally apparent, and the continued distinctness of each species would seem to argue powerfully at once in favor of the special creation of the varied kinds of animals and plants, and against the evolution of new species from the old, and against the hereditary connection of species one with another. The argument derived from the visible gaps between even nearly related kinds of animals was therefore too apparent to be overlooked by popular critics of evolution, and it was also too important to be made light of by evolutionists themselves. Distinct now, distinct always, was the opinion which was duly expressed regarding the nature of species in the early days of the historical controversy concerning their origin. We may not be surprised, therefore, to find Mr. Darwin, in speaking of this subject, saying that one objection to his theory, namely the distinctness of specific forms and their not being blended together by innumerable transitional links, is a very obvious difficulty, and again, why is not all nature in confusion instead of the species being, as we see them, well defined? Alike grave, then, to evolutionists and their opponents is the question of missing links. Let us endeavor to examine this question in the light of recent research, with the view of determining to which side the balance of evidence duly weighed will lead us. Amongst the procedures commonly witnessed in our courts of law, there is one which I believe is styled, in legal parlance, taking an objection to the relevancy of the record or indictment. The essential feature of that procedure consists in one of the interested parties showing that certain parts of the statement of facts made by the opposing side involve items which may be absolutely untrue or incorrect, and which therefore require to be expunged from the list of matters involving litigation. In this way the details of a lawsuit become simplified, 
and the chariot wheels of justice are enabled to roll easily onwards in that glorious ease and uncertainty of movement which is one of the most ancient if also unsatisfactory characteristics of legal science and practice the contention before us at present in one respect admits of its issues being amended through an objection to their relevancy the chief points for discussion are those concerning the need for missing links according to the theory of evolution and the ability or inability of the evolutionist to supply them let us suppose however that counsel for the evolutionist moves the relevancy of these points the following will be his argument Quote, it is demanded that we produce the missing links or transitional forms between existing species unquestionably the demand is a just one and in furnishing its reply it is clear we must point out such links either in the existing world or in the fossils found in rock formations as representing the life systems of the past we shall be able presently to demonstrate that whatever evidence geology has to show is all in our favor and that where a want of evidence exists such deficiency is no fault of ours but depends on the imperfection of the geological record but there exists an equally important consideration for our opponents in the fact that the very circumstances under which new species are produced may frequently obviate the necessity for the existence of missing links and transitional forms this latter contention can be supported by the plainest evidence and on this preliminary point namely the reason for the justifiable and natural absence of transitional forms we may firstly lead evidence unquote it is necessary then that we should by the laws of and in the very nature of the origin of species by evolution or by mr darwin's principle of natural selection always expect to find transitional forms connecting existing species mr darwin's reply to this question is a negative the new varieties or species which appear will tend by the very conditions of evolution to present improvements on the species which preceded them and on the principle that the weakest go to the wall the ancestors of existing species will in many cases have become exterminated by their successors being better adapted than themselves to survive in the struggle for existence the parent species will fail in the competition involved in the struggle with its offspring viewing each species as usually the product of an improved constitution we may naturally expect the parent form and the transitional links to have become exterminated as mr darwin remarks by the very process of the formation and perfection of the new form but extinct animals are liable to be preserved as fossils in the rocks composing the crust of the earth and yet missing links are not discoverable in any adequate proportions this latter fact has already been mentioned and the reason assigned in the fragmentary condition of nature's great geological museum neglecting the geological evidence for the nonce it might still be contended that living species as noted by us today should be more closely connected than they are were their creation by evolution and descent a probable theory now the pith of the evolutionist's reply consists in showing that such connecting species or forms are by no means to be expected as a matter of course and that their absence is in fact actually favorable to his views and opinions consider a well-known and proved case of the origin of very different varieties from a common stock that of the pigeons the various breeds or races of pigeons of which the four best known are the powders fantails carriers and tumblers may be certainly regarded as having descended from the rock pigeon columbia livia 
Between the various breeds of pigeons, the differences are so marked as to be of specific character. Their variations are so plain and distinct that had these birds been met with in a wild state and been examined by ornithologists, they would have been assuredly classified as distinct species and not as mere varieties of one species. So apparent are the differences in size, in color, in feather arrangement, and even in the skeleton. Such an instance stands, therefore, as a most typical case of the origin of new races or of new species by the modification of the old, and its consideration will show us the futility of the demand that the original stock should resemble the descendants to which it has given origin. There exists no necessity that the rock pigeon should be intermediate between any two of the four breeds just mentioned, or that any two of these races, say the fantails and powders, should in turn evince combinations of the characters of each other. Mr. Darwin remarks of the pigeons and their history that, quote, if we could collect all the pigeons which have ever lived, from before the time of the Romans to the present day, we should be able to group them in several lines, diverging from the parent rock pigeon. Each line would consist of almost insensible steps, occasionally broken by some slightly greater variation or sport, and each would culminate in one of our present highly modified forms. Of the many former connecting links, some would be found to have become absolutely extinct, without having left any issue, whilst others, though extinct, would be seen to be the progenitors of the existing races. I have heard it remarked as a strange circumstance, he continues, that we occasionally hear of the local or complete extinction of domestic races, whilst we hear nothing of their origin. How, it has been asked, can these losses be compensated, and more than compensated? For we know that, with almost all domesticated animals, the races have largely increased in number since the time of the Romans. But on the view here given we can understand this apparent contradiction. The extinction of a race within historical times is an event likely to be noticed, but its gradual and scarcely sensible modification, through unconscious selection, and its subsequent divergence, either in the same or more commonly in distant countries, into two or more strains, and their gradual conversion into subbreeds, and these into well-marked breeds, are events which would rarely be noticed. The death of a tree that has attained gigantic dimensions is recorded. The slow growth of smaller trees and their increase in number excite no attention." Unquote. The true view of the matter really consists in our recognizing that the likeness and relation of new species or races to their parent stock depend on the circumstances of human observation, and on the exact lines along which the variation has proceeded. Occasionally, each likeness is apparent. At other times, by the very manner of development of the new species, it is non-existent. Nor must we forget one all-important consideration, which, according to Professor Huxley, Mr. Darwin himself somewhat overlooked. It is a frequent fact, hereafter to be noted, that despite the Linnean aphorism, natura non facit saltum, Nature may and sometimes does not take merely a jump, but a running leap from one species to another. What would be thought of the history of the ancon or otter sheep, which about the close of last century was born of an ordinary ewe as the progeny of an equally commonplace male parent, both, along with fourteen other ewes, having been the property of a certain Seth Wright, a Massachusetts farmer? This ancon sheep differed most materially from its parents and from the ovine race at large, in possessing a large body 
and proportionally short legs. For sundry reasons, connected with the over-lively habits of his long-legged sheep in leaping over their fences, right from this one Ancon sheep, in due time, bred a whole flock of pure otter sheep, the breed being allowed to die out on the introduction of the merino sheep. Presuming that, in ignorance of its true and sudden origin, the history of the Ancon breed had been made the subject of biological speculation, how would the demand for missing links and the evolutionist's inability to reply to the demand have been construed simply as against the transmutation of the sheep species or race and as against the origin of the ancon by the variation and modification of the ordinary sheep and yet the ancon race had certainly its beginning in the sudden modification of an existing race such as utterly precluded the possibility of any connecting links having been developed or required such considerations we may submit will tend to weaken the relevancy of the demand for missing links and transitional forms but it may be worth our while to hear a little further testimony on the same point taking mr darwin's own examples we find him citing the instance of a journey from north to south over a great continent in the course of which we meet with closely related or representative species which represent each other in their respective regions or habitats such species are found to meet and interlock and thereafter as our journey proceeds one species is found to become less frequent until it is completely replaced by the other even in the common or middle region where these two species intermingle the members of the one group are as absolutely distinct from the other as if specimens had been selected for comparison from the headquarters of each species yet says mr darwin quote, by my theory these altered species are descended from a common parent unquote, each in the process of descent having exterminated the parent species and also the transitional forms once again leaving the extinct and fossil species out of consideration for the present the question crops up why do the species not intermingle in the middle region with intermediate conditions of life here geology steps in to reconcile the discrepancy because your continent is continuous from north to south today it is not lawful to infer that this continuity of land surface always existed changes of land and the separation of even our great continents into detached portions of territory are not theories but facts of geology and admitting the existence of separate islands or disconnected portions of land surface the distinction of species by such separation and the absence of intermediate forms would be fully accounted for nor must it be lost sight of that the neutral territory or no man's land common to two species is usually small and ill-defined as compared with the wider territory or area of the distribution of each group and again the range and extension of a species and its power of commingling with other species will be materially affected by the range of distribution of other and already well-defined groups the species will be preyed upon by these latter groups and the tendency to mix and unite with its nearest allies is thus lessened and limited whilst the fact has been already noted that the narrow and limited character of the common area is by no means favorable to a blending of the characters of the nearly related groups conversely in a larger area with less risk of destructive competition from other species we find the representative group attaining the maximum of its development and even in point of greater numbers alone attaining a marked and characteristic personality 
as do the representative species alluded to in the north and south of a large land surface, each species thus fighting for its own hand, and either aided or on the other hand weakened by surrounding conditions, improves or decays without mixing with neighboring groups. End of section 20. Chapter 8. The Evidence from Missing Links, Part 1.